Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature fattening air, deep voices, and massively multiplayer online role-playing games. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. In addition to detrimental environmental effects, it has been hypothesized that increases in air pollutants may contribute to the obesity epidemic. The logic behind this goes that CO2 lowers the pH of blood. The increased acidity affects activity of erexins, neuropeptide hormones which mediate metabolism as well as control appetite, resulting in an altered energy expenditure and consequently weight gain. Previous research has been conducted on weight gain in lab animals and several wild populations, and a collaborative group of scientists from the University of Copenhagen and Glastrup University Hospital decided to determine whether this was observable in humans. Danish researcher Lars George Hersalk first proposed this idea when he used data from a 22-year study on weight gain and observed that both clinically and non-overweight men and women had gained weight. This is a similar finding to a study which observed the weight gain in both wild and lab species over 50 years, despite the laboratory animals having been maintained in a stable environment with a controlled diet. He goes, The normal theory is that fat people get fatter because they don't move as much as they should. But the study showed that thin people also get fatter and this happened over the whole of the 22-year period of the study. Hersalg, which researches Anders Soldun and Arnie Astrup from University of Copenhagen, decided to do a pilot study where six men were exposed to varying levels of carbon dioxide. When exposed to higher levels of carbon dioxide, they found the men increased the caloric intake by 6%. Whilst the scientists believe that the results indicate that weight gain and metabolism is more complex and could be attributed by other factors previously not thought of, they also emphasize the importance of a healthy diet and active lifestyle. The study has been published in the Nutrition and Diabetes Journal and the researchers intend to conduct trials on rats to further test the hypothesis. It appears that there is more to speech than simply verbal communication. A study published in Proceedings of Royal Society B suggests that people perceive personality depending on the voice pitch and may even influence voters in their choice of candidate. The collaborative team from Duke and Miami University initially recorded the voices of hypothetical candidates before editing the voices with a higher or lower pitch. When test subjects were asked to choose whom they would elect as a preferred candidate, 
both men and women prefer those possessing lower-pitched voices. The team then played the recording to three groups of 35 and 35. Um, the team then played the recording to three groups of 35 men and women, and then asked them which appeared to be stronger, trustworthy, and more competent. In this case, there was a tendency for both men and women to perceive lower-pitched female voices to possess these qualities to a greater degree. However, in the case of male voices, this trend only appeared in male subjects. Duke University biologist Rindy Anderson suggests that this may be potentially due to females utilizing different cues to gauge these traits. Both Anderson and Dr. Casey Klofstad, an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, speculate that these findings may be a factor behind the gender disparity of leadership roles. Says Klofstad, our results raise the possibility that the electability of female candidates could be influenced by the fact that women tend to have higher pitched voices than men. While gender discrimination is an obvious case. Of underrepresentation of women as leaders, our results suggest that biological differences between the sexes and our responses to those differences could potentially be an additional factor to consider. Whilst the results suggest that individuals' choices can be influenced by biology, Anderson is quick to point out that these studies were conducted in the lab, and in her own words, we need to be very careful about. Interpreting these results in a broader context, the team intends to apply the results in the upcoming 2012 elections. The LA Times report on a treatment for baldness based on the cause of baldness. Published in the journal Science Translational Medicine, the research shows that a hormone-like substance called prostaglandin PGD2 was more plentiful in areas of the scalp that were bald than in patches where hair continued to grow. In mice, the same prostaglandin was in large supply when they were in the shedding phase of their normal hair follicle cycle of growing and shedding. So, seeing this similarity, the next step was to find the receptor, the cellular landing dock for PGD2, and this receptor is called GPR44. So now that they've found it, they need to block it with either a drug or a topical cream, and then baldness won't. Happen. Such a new treatment could not only help the 80% of men that suffer male pattern baldness, but also women who suffer from hair thinning from other causes. The current drugs available to slow hair loss don't attack the cause of baldness, and they aren't safe for all sufferers to use. And from new scientists, we have genetically cheating athletes, or at least the concern that athletes might be able to use genetic engineering. Now, you might think that you need to actually breed an athlete for an athlete to make use of genetic engineering; that you'd have to be born with the new genes. But it's not necessarily the case. There's also therapeutic genetic modification, and the way they do this is they get a virus, and they get the virus to insert the genes into your body. Now, previously they've used these viruses to try gene therapy on people, and There were ethical concerns when somebody who was otherwise not terribly ill died as a result of the infection. 
So that slowed down. But of course, it slowed down in the ethical world. In the unethical world of cheats, they're concerned that it might still go. So the world's anti-doping agency is looking, how would you screen for gene doping? And what are they looking for? Well, they've got mice with extra copies of a muscle-boosting gene called IGF-1 which codes for a protein insulin-like growth factor 1, which is what the GF stands for. And what they've done is inject the mouse's limbs with a virus that implants this gene into the muscle cells. So these are normal mice. They've not been specially bred. The mice have had a virus injector that carries the gene that changes their muscles to be three times as enduring as a regular mouse. So they tested this by recording how long the mice could swim before they were exhausted. And the virus-infected mice swam three times as long as the ordinary mice that got the virus, but not the growth factor. Basically, the effect of this viral-induced gene would be huge for an athlete, but it's not detectable in blood or in urine, the normal test for drugs. Instead, you'd actually have to get a little sample of the muscle in a biopsy to be able to tell that they've been infected with a virus that carried a gene that made them stronger. So instead of having to train yourself really well over a matter of years to become a really good athlete that can just endure and run and run and run or swim and swim and swim, instead you can get gene doping for a month and be just as good. So I think it's really interesting that there are so many other potential uses for this. How could the military miss out on this, if their soldiers just could go and go and go, could run and run and run, or just carry the packs, if they had three times the endurance of a normal person, or at least three times the endurance they would have had without lots and lots of training, with only a month of treatment, how could they avoid it? It's hard to believe that they're not doing it right now. I guess there will also be other health applications too, like in in the world of physiotherapy and for patients who have suffered from muscle degeneration, this would be particularly a useful method if it's safe, I guess. Yes. The question is, is it safe? Mm. For soldiers and cheating athletes, maybe that's not such an important question. Circumcision was originally thought to be just another custom and perhaps one that was a bit unfair because the babies weren't old enough to consent to having their foreskin removed. And later it was found that it gives you a tiny bit of statistical protection against getting HIV AIDS. So circumcision is being introduced in a large way in countries where AIDS is rampant in various countries in Africa. And now the news is that circumcision may help prevent prostate cancer, but only if the operation takes place before the person has sex for the first time. Now, the big circumcision program in the countries in Africa is, of course, happening with adult men who have usually already had sex. So this may not help them at all. But, of course, if you had the operation before you were sexually active, which would include, of course, all those babies who are circumcised as part of their family's customs, whether it's religion or whether it's just cultural, they would get the protection. So at the Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle, they asked 3,000 men around half of whom had prostate cancer, if they'd been circumcised and when they first had sex. And what they found is the overall risk of prostate cancer was reduced by 15% and 18% for the most aggressive form of prostate cancer. If the men had sex before they were circumcised, there were no benefits at all. 
So why would this work? What would the theory be? Well, the team theorised that inflammation around the prostate gland would be triggered by sexually transmitted infections and that this inflammation would promote the development of cancer. And since circumcision, which is the removal of the foreskin, removes the mucosal layers that are under the foreskin as well, which is normally where pathogens breed, it might hinder the development of cancer from these inflammations from the infections. So by reducing the amount of infections, it reduces the amount of cancer is the theory. But they're not really sure why, they just know that that's what the stats say. They point towards previous research showing that having many sexual partners or high frequency of sexual intercourse can increase your risk of prostate cancer by up to 40%. And in 2003, it was found that frequent masturbation lowers the risk of prostate cancer. The theory is it might prevent the buildup of carcinogens in the prostate. So there you have it. Circumcision while you're a virgin will give you 15 to 18% protection against prostate cancer. And frequent masturbation might give you even more reduction of risk of prostate cancer. New Scientist reports that video games are mathematically difficult. They're not just hard to solve. For us, they're hard generally to solve. And they belong to a class of mathematical problems called NP-hard, which means they can't be solved in a short amount of time by a simple algorithm. You need to actually work it all the way through. So this means that some hard problems could be solved by playing a game because you can convert a mathematical problem into a collection of logical statements and these logical statements could be visualised as a computer game. So Eric Domain of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and his colleagues have been looking at these sort of problems as computer games. Now, the ones that you buy are designed to be solvable. You know before you start that there is some way of solving it, even if you have trouble with it, because otherwise it wouldn't be solved. But the mathematicians are playing with these games on levels that may or may not be solvable, which makes it much, much more difficult. So they don't know until they've solved the level whether it can be solved. And when they've solved the level, they've actually also solved this series of logical statements and proved a theorem. So perhaps if they were to automate the process of turning these mathematical problems into computer games, all those gamers out there could actually solve real mathematical problems with real-life consequences by playing games. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And next, the NICTA interview of the week. Jeff Batty at the National Information Communications Technology Australia Research Group is working on massively multiplayer online role-playing games that are connected peer-to-peer instead of to a central server. He spoke to me at the noisy NICTA Tech Fest. I'm speaking to Jeff Batty. You're looking at a peer-to-peer network for massively multiplayer 
online applications, is that right? That's right, yeah. We offer a networking suite, which is a set of libraries and computer applications that assist the development of and the running of massively multiplayer online games. Problems that are faced by publishers of MMOs, uh, that's massively multiplayer online games, uh, is that it's very expensive to run them. They have to have uh, large numbers of servers running all the game logic, and they have to spend a lot of money on bandwidth, sending updates out and receiving updates from the, the clients. And so what our software aims to do is to use a distributed network, so you have a peer-to-peer network formed of the player's own machines, and use that to propagate network updates rather than central servers. Very, very clever, because there's all that potential that's not being used. Uh, of all the users' machines. Yeah, so um, the great thing about peer to peer network is as it scales, it actually gets more resources. So you've got more computer power available to you as the network grows. So you can use that to run services on the peer to peer network itself rather than the central server. So, do you need a particular operating system for this to work? Um, so we developed the uh, software um, targeting.NET platform, which is a Microsoft platform, but there's also uh, versions of it running under Linux and Mac OS X under Mono and we're in the process of broadening out uh, the platforms we're targeting so we've got a uh, Flash version now that we've developed um, and we have C++ bindings so the idea is whatever platform you're on you should be able to integrate our software with your game application. And I noticed you've got location-based services written under there in addition to the online games and the virtual worlds. Yeah, so that's uh, another application area that we're looking to move into. So the, the major problem that our software solves in the virtual gaming is applicable to the real world because the problem we're solving is how do you find out who you need to send updates to? That's the, what you have to solve when you do a peer-to-peer -peer game because you can't send updates to everyone, there's too many people in the game. And so you only want to send updates to the people near you because the people far away can't even see you, they don't need you. And so, the technology we've developed to solve that problem can also solve the problem in the real world of finding out who's near you in the real world space. And so if you had a mobile application on your phone, for example, took your GPS data in, anyone else who's joined the network as well will be able to find them, uh, find out who's close to you or who's close to a place that you're interested in. And again, that all works on a distributed network, so there's no central server having to run to, to power the whole thing. It's powered by the people's own phones in that instance. So that tells you where other people are and where you are. Yeah, so we call it an interest management system. So, the, in a high level terms, the, the basic functionality of how it works is the world is divided up into cells and arbitrary um, peers on the network are assigned to be a server for each cell, an interest management server. And if you're, when you move into a cell, you notify the server for that cell, I'm in your cell now, tell me who else is in your in the cell, and it will tell you who's near you. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the basics of it. Now it's a bit more sophisticated than that because you have problems such as what happens if everyone goes to the same cell, yes. the cell server's overloaded. So we've got additional layers of instruments that kick in to handle those overload situations. But that's the, that's the crux of how it works. Well, that's really, really interesting work, and it's interesting to see the application of the peer-to-peer technologies coming in. Yeah, peer-to-peer networking is kind of not not been uh, popular in gaming applications because the problem you have in peer-to-peer in contract server is additional security concerns. So, with the games running on central server, the publisher controls. That's 
um, relatively safe from hacking attempts and people trying to manipulate the game logic to benefit their own play. Now, if the game logic is running on a player's own machine, they have a lot more opportunity, they can hack their own client software directly manipulate game state to their own advantage. Yes. And so um, that's the trade-off peer-to-peer versus um, server clients. But the, there's a few factors that make this still viable, and that's that um, different games have different security requirements. So some, you know, a, a, a game that's only almost tenuously a game, something like Second Life, yes. you know, there's no, uh, not necessarily competitive interaction going on, there's no combat, for example. No. So that has lower security requirements. And there'll be plenty of functionality that can happily run on a user's own machine without mm. compromising the game experience for the other players. Yes. But in a, in a combat game where you're trying to shoot someone, for example, if they are invulnerable to your bullets because they've hacked their own client, then that ruins the whole game experience for everyone. So uh, the second thing is we've actually got a hybrid solution. So you can run central servers in addition to the peer-to-peer network, and you can move parts of your application logic onto the central servers yes. um, according to the needs of security. And in our latest developments, that's actually dynamically configurable. So you can assign arbitrary machines in the network for various parts of the application's logic to run on. Um, and yeah, as I say, in the stuff we're working on at the moment, you'll be able to, at runtime, switch game logic from one machine to another. So you can be running in a peer-to-peer mode, and then someone walks from a chat zone to a combat zone, for example, and you move the game logic for their character onto a secure server, so they can't cheat. Yes, so it adapts to what the players are doing. Yeah, that's the, that's the potential there in our mm. hybrid solution. Mm. Awesome. Well, Jeff Batty, thank you very much. That's my pleasure. And that was Jeff Batty from NICTA, the National Information Communications Technology Australia Research Group. You can find out more at NICTA, N-I-C-T-A, the force of friction, an interaction that resists motion. When two surfaces press together, a force resists relative motion. Sliding friction It's the ratio of forces Friction on normal Yeah And if you think friction ain't good for us It creates waste heat And slows you down And efficiency is better If it's reduced By making things But it's the force of friction that helps us move It gives us traction on the road and gets us in the groove You got the kind of surface that can be so smooth, yeah An interaction you can feel and that's the best part of it type of surface that you're pressing on independent of area proportional to normal force two types of friction static and kinetic the lesser one when something rests stationary 
the force is more than if it slides down and down. And if you think friction ain't good for us, it creates waste heat and slows you down. And efficiency is better if it's reduced by making things smooth. And it's the force of friction that helps us move. It gives us traction on the road and gets us in the groove. You got the kind of surface that can be so smooth, yeah. An interaction you can feel, and that's the best part of it. But it's the force of friction that helps us move It gives us traction on the road and gets us in the groove You got the kind of surface that can be so smooth, yeah An interaction you can feel And that's the best part of it And that's the best part of it Oh, and that's the best part of it Oh, and that's the best part of it And that was Derek Muller with Smooth. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check out the new 2SER website, www.2SER.com. Contributing to the program was Therese Chen. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Diffusion! <laughs> 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 <laughs>